hello everybody who listens to futureprimitive.org. It's a wonderful opportunity today for me to be on the phone with Christopher Beish. Dr. Christopher Beish has been a professor of religious studies at Youngstown State University for almost 30 years, as well as an intermittent adjunct faculty member at the California Institute of Integral Studies. From 2000 to 2002, he was the Director of Transformative Learning at the Institute of Noetic Sciences outside San Francisco. At YSU, he teaches courses in Eastern religions, transpersonal psychology, consciousness research, and Buddhism. His writings explore reincarnation, the philosophical implications of non-ordinary states of consciousness, and the dynamics of collective consciousness within the classroom. He was awarded YSU's Distinguished Professor Award twice, once for teaching and once for research. His books are Life Cycles, Reincarnation and the Web of Life, and Dark Night, Early Dawn, Steps to a Deep Ecology of Mind, and The Living Classroom, Teaching and Collective Consciousness. I would like to ask you, Chris, what is it that links the two books Dark Night, Early Dawn, and The Living Classroom. How did one book pour into the next? Mm, good question. Well, Dark Night, Early Dawn is uh, kind of a philosophical exploration of deep, non-ordinary states of consciousness that came out of my 20 years of working with psychedelic agents primarily, in the, under the rubric that Stan Groff has developed for harnessing the, the energy of those very powerful states mm-hmm. and uh, embedding that, those individual states in uh, a lifestyle of daily regimen of spiritual practices of one form or another, meditation, yoga. And uh, that was work that I did in the background of my life, in the foreground of my life. I was working as a university professor and teaching, you know, regular load of courses. And then mm-hmm. on my background in my private life, what I thought of as my private life, I was doing this very deep work in, um, in non-ordinary states of consciousness. And I didn't, because of the potentially controversial nature of that work, I didn't talk about this work to my students. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't publish at the time, you know, out of this work. I kept it private. I kept it to myself. Yes. But what I found was that over time, the depth of the states that I was entering into seemed to be triggering resonances with the students in my classes. Mm-hmm. And uh, my inner process seemed to be stimulating their inner process and drawing them into various... Um, Minor kind of, you know, personal 
Mm-hmm. So Dark Night Early Dawn is a, a record or an exploration of the first 10 years of this journey, or kind of teasing out some of the philosophical and psychological content of the first 10 years of what was for me a 20-year journey. And The Living Classroom is describing the stages and steps that I went through to learn how to manage this very powerful collective energy that was uh, activated Mm -hmm. around me as I did this work. Mm -hmm. So, perhaps in other words, you brought your experience in uh, non-ordinary states of consciousness to a practical point. You live the experience with your students. Yes. Uh, When I started this work, I was still working within a framework that basically said when you do this work, you're really working on your individual psyche. What I discovered, as all the mystical traditions teach, but it took me a while to, you know, to take this idea in, what I realized is that there is no such thing as a personal or entirely private spiritual practice because there is no such thing as an entirely private psyche. Yes. That there is collective fields of psyche and we are individually aware within a, a larger collective awareness so that anytime one individual begins to move deep and activate the potentials of this field, it's kind of like ripples spreading out over a lake. It, it just naturally activates persons around them. So, and, and this is very tangible, it's very practical. I found, for example, when I was lecturing in a classroom, Yes. and I was just sort of, you know, I had a point I was trying to make, and it had nothing to do with spiritual practice, it was just something about, you know, I, do, I teach a lot of world religions, uh-huh. the Eastern religions. I would reach for a concept to illustrate an idea, and I would make up an example. I would just kind of see an image in my mind, and I would give an example. And students began to uh, come up to me after class, and they would say, you know, it's strange that you use that example you did in class, because that's exactly what happened to me this week, or that's exactly what happened to a member of my family. Mm-hmm. And this first time this happened, I thought, well, that's just coincidence. Yes. But it began to happen over and over again, and I found that the students were finding bits and pieces of their life showing up in my lectures. And the way that they were being touched, the, the kind of invitation that they were being given by this mysterious resonance was actually uh, summoning them to a transformation of their thinking, a transformation of their life in some way. And so in this way, the collective transformation, or let's say the process seems to be collective right from the very start. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you if um, there is no private mind, how do we live in the respect of each each other's individuality? Yeah. Go back. Yeah. Yeah. It's a both-hand situation, I think. Mm -hmm. We have to affirm two truths which are both true, and the simultaneity of both of those truths is the is the beauty of the system. And one 
private mind that there is, we are embedded within fundamentally collective processes. Consciousness is, is, as the great spiritual teachers have told us, consciousness is an ocean and we are waves on the ocean. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, individuality is also true. The life of the, the fact of the individual is also true. The universe seems to um, delight in individual. It, it delights in, in the cultivation, the accumulation of experience that matures in individual self-awareness and the potentiating of that awareness over multiple lifetimes. And so we are we are both individuals and we are what an individual is, is an open field, an open system, which is porous to this larger contextual presence, which is the other side. And I personally don't want to dissolve the individual entirely into the unified field the way some spiritual philosophers do, but neither do I want to trap the individual within the private psyche the way that our modern mind tends to do. So you say we pulse in synchronicity. Would you speak about synchronicities in uh, the morphic field? Yeah. Well, in the living classroom, I follow a number of thinkers describing this living pulse that many people have experienced, the ways which an event is triggers or it seems to be uh, connected to a separate event which is not causally related and yet they are meaningfully related. And this is an indication of the deeper fabric of intelligence that pervades the universe, the fields of intelligence, fields of consciousness. So that what happens in one corner of the universe touches what happens in other corners of the universe, vice versa. Mm. That as I am working in what I had previously thought was my private life, my private spiritual practice, mm-hmm. I found that there were parallel processes. It was like a, it was like a, a, a deeper neurological network mm. that was being activated and stimulating resonances between other students, my students' lives, and my life. And the synchronicity is a symptom of this deeper pattern of intelligence. I mean, it's like we are alive at so many levels. Mm -hmm. We are alive at a cellular level. We are alive at an individual psychological level. But we are also alive at various patterns of collective level. Mm-hmm. Don't simply jump from the individual to what you call the collective unconscious, which would be the consciousness of the entire species. Yes. There are all sorts of subtle um, fields of connectivity, very precise, very exact uh, fields through which we are connected to other beings. And when the when synchronicity occurs, it's a symptom of the intelligence of one or the other orders of these fields coming forward. Mm. So, for example, everybody, I guess, who really pays attention to their life collects these stories of synchronicity. Here's one that has always stuck in my mind. Okay. I had a student in one of my classes, and she told me this. 
something that she had no choice in. Yes. It was paired with the roommate. Turns out that her roommate, her sophomore year, had just been forced into the same situation she had dealt with. She also had to take legal custody of her two younger siblings. Right. And my student, of course, recognized that the universe had to be speaking here. Yes. There had to be an intelligence that was using her experience to help this other young woman through her crisis. And mm-hmm. that's the intelligence of, of these webs. That's the synchronicity of also the intelligence. So this leads me to ask you, do you feel... Do you think, do you believe that this intelligence that we share is a loving intelligence? I do believe it's a loving intelligence, but we have to, we can't think of loving in sentimental terms. It's, uh, it's a loving intelligence because it's a compassionate intelligence, because it's an intelligence of oneness and one compassion is the experience of oneness and love is the experience of an inherent ontological oneness Uh which is loving but at the same time it's very intense it's very demanding it can be very seemingly harsh i mean uh, the goddess is not just you know the earth goddess giver of life it's also kali the destroyer in order to liberate our knowledge, ourselves into a higher form than we've ever been, must destroy the old form. Mm-hmm. So if we understand that love can be very demanding and very difficult, then I would say, yes, it's definitely a loving presence. It's mm-hmm. intelligent, live, it's growing, connecting, always yearning to become more than it was, always inviting to transcend our previous limits something that we have not yet become. Yes, yes, unfolding. Do you uh, think that um, the invention of the atom bomb, the H-bomb, and uh, uh, Dr. Hoffman being introduced to LSD through his research of ergotamine, do you think that these two things... Uh, are synchronistic. It certainly is suggestive, isn't it? Yes. Uh, I mean, many people have commented on this as a synchronicity that it is as if LSD is the is you know, explodes our consciousness in a way that the atom bomb explodes and and forces absolutely marks the ending of an era because now. We, we began a process of not being able to use our military technology. If we use our technology, we lose the war. Mm-hmm. A radical departure in human history. It just explodes all frame of reference, previous frames of reference. And similarly, LSD explodes all previous frames of reference. And mm-hmm. it's a dramatic expansion of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So I think one can make a very strong argument that there is a there is synchronicity operating deep in the fabric of life there. Okay. Would you speak to us about 
autopoesis, the autopoetic structure, the process of self-creating. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of an ugly word for the most magnificent of processes. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, and yet it is such a beautiful, beautiful process. Mm-hmm. It seems that the universe is a self-emergent process. It is constantly generating new forms. It seems these new forms give birth to themselves, producing higher, deeper, more complex forms. And these forms are self-regulating. They they are clearly kind of self-defining. They have membranes. They have an inside-outside boundary to them. They are self-referencing. They are learning. They are self-challenging, and uh, they they expand their repertoire of experience. They digest their experience. They become more than they were before, and all of all of these processes, more or less, are referenced by this term of autopoiesis. Now that we are we are a system which has a central integrity, which has an internal coherence and an emerging identity. And yet at the same time, we are an open system, constantly in in rapport and communion with our environment, taking in information, taking in energy, giving back out information, giving back energy. If we look at it in a large perspective, this is one of the great gifts of physical existence. That is, that physical existence is so dense that it actually shatters the unified field of the creative intelligence. It sort of shatters the being of God into bits and pieces. Wow. Those bits and pieces grow over vast orders of time. And as they grow, they become, they activate the potential which is latent within them as as, as sparks of God. Mm -hmm. As they become more potentiated, more self-actualized, they become more individualized. The longer they are playing in and out of time, the more individualized they become. And that that individual individuality, I think, is precious. I think it's precious to the universe. I think it is a profound gift of the universe, a profound gift of the entire spiritual physical system and that individuality I don't believe is is snuffed out or evaporated in final mystical realization mm-hmm. I think it's recontextualized but I don't think such a such a precious thing which has been actualized over such a vast track of time would be simply evaporated when one's consciousness remembers or returns through the awareness of divine wholeness. Yeah. So to me, autopoiesis points to that emergent individuality, which is part of nature. Okay. So here I would like to ask you to speak about shared suffering and shared joy. Mm. One might wonder why the individual suffering, but then again, 
there is shared joy. Yeah. 
rebirth. Mm-hmm. That is, I experience the suffering coming to its culminating point. Yes. I experience the birth itself as a collective birth, as something that was kind of drawing from the collective psyche and striving towards a realization that would culminate time in actually a near time in history, but would culminate in a collective regenerative process. That led me to understand that this is the way it works underneath the surface always, all the time. That just as Rupert Sheldrake has argued in very important books, that the learning of the individual is always an expression of the learning of the field, of the collective, and it contributes to the learning of the collective. So there's always this feedback process. So we always embody the sins and the virtues of history and we are and we always are giving back to the collective the fruits of our learning, the fruits of our victories, and the burdens of our failures. So we are always connected to other beings in the web of life. And their victories influence us, our victories influence them. So do you think that uh, perhaps the echo crisis, the the strong echo crisis that uh, we are going through as a species might correlate with the, the prenatal, the perinatal uh, stages that Groff talks about? Mm-hmm. And I think humanity, 
of the Kairos, the transformation, on an individual basis? Well, first of all, we already are. <laughs> okay. Just by living here, just by being here, we are already hardwired into the system. We already are part of this transformative moment in history. Now, if we want to be more consciously participatory, yes. and if we want to contribute more proactively to this process. I don't think there's any I don't think there's any one answer. It's because each of us are kind of designed to fulfill a particular role in this larger transformative process. Some of us are educators, some of us are physicians, some of us are politicians, some of us are artists, creative artists, some of us are scientists. We are all kind of bringing to bear a piece of the larger puzzle. And I think a lot of it is a matter of committing ourselves completely to bringing about this transformation, the global transformation, by actualizing the potential of our individual nature in our individual circumstances. 
I know it's kind of trite to say it, but it, it really is a matter of thinking globally and acting locally. Yes. It's a matter of simply looking around and looking at the ground under our feet, going deep within and asking, what is it within myself that has the greatest potential to contribute to the momentum of transformation for the human family? What do I need to change? What do I need to bring forward? What do I need to address in order to make a contribution that will help us through this transition? And that question takes some people into um, templated spiritual practice. It takes some people into a strong social action. It takes some people into story telling, story making. Mm-hmm. It takes some people into the laboratory. Mm-hmm. You know, Barbara Marks Hubbard has this wonderful wheel that she uses in her discussion. Yes. Different aspects of life. And what's important is that everybody find their place in the larger wheel of this undertaking. We already, not like we have to create it, we already are there. We already are a part of the divine. Exactly. We already are underway. So I would like to ask you, Christopher Bash, when and where is it appropriate for us to work with sacred medicines? <laughs> yeah. Now that's a large one. I know. Uh, there are, of course, so many types of sacred medicine. There are over 300 organically, uh, dis- uh, organic existing forms of sacred medicine. Yes. Psychoactive substances, thousands of synthesized uh, psychedelic agents. during their adolescence or in their very adolescent years, I think they can be 
And I think they can be very valuable at any time in the middle of life and any time in one's later years. Because there are times, late years, I think, which they can be particularly valuable as one is beginning the arc of returning to the spiritual dimension at the end of one's life. Yes. So it, it really depends on uh, context, the psyche of the individual, the opportunity that they have to work with these substances under guidance and uh, environment, the opportunity that they have to be buffered from uh, legal prosecution, because our culture has not—they don't—it doesn't understand these substances. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, with the work of Matt and uh, Rick Dublin, yes. Yeah, Rick Dublin's work and, and all the fine uh, research which is being done at so many levels, and the books that are being written. Hopefully, in this generation, we will find a shift in our legal environment, mm -hmm. and also a broadening of our definition of spiritual practice, so that we can recoup this ancient lineage of sacred medicine and it'll get easier I mean I really hope that my children and my grandchildren will have an easier environment to work with these agents than I've had absolutely I loved what you said about um, just now about the arc of returning maybe there's the arc of arriving and the arc of returning yeah So at the end of your book, The Living Classroom, you uh, publish a uh, paper that one of your students wrote, an essay that she called The Maple Tree. And uh, I would just love you to talk about, well, a couple of years ago, I wrote a haiku, and what came to me was one tree, one leaf, one time. Mm -hmm. And so I've been so touched by it twice in the book. Uh, you uh, reference our, uh, our life and our consciousness as being like trees. So 
labyrinth of limbs back up through the twig and back into the leaf. And now it is, again, individually self-aware, but now it can see the tree. Now it sees that all the leaves are aspects of a larger consciousness and that we are alive both individually and we are alive as this larger life force tree. What? I'm sorry. conversation around and uh, I want to thank you for this beautiful field that I feel we are in and ask you what you would like to say in closing to the good people who are listening to us. Well, let me think about that for a minute. Yes, of course. Vision, a vision of the future human, a human being unlike. 
unlike previous beings, a human being of truly a transformed heart, transformed mind, a human being that we see prototypes in the great Hindu Christ, in Buddha, Muhammad, uh, but a being ultimately of a, a fundamentally expanded and transformed character with a profoundly opened heart and a profoundly augmented and elevated mind. Mm-hmm. Because as clouds of this crisis gather on the horizon, there's going to be a great deal of fear. There's going to be a great deal of suffering. A great deal of what? Of suffering. Suffering and They're coming into hard times, and these hard times are going to deepen, I think, for years and decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people will feel like they are losing control, and we are. Yes. We are losing control. We're going to lose a lot of our reference points. We're going to lose a lot of security. But if we can enter into an awareness of what nature is bringing forward in this crisis, mm-hmm. a spiritual awakening mm-hmm. that is coming forward, a very tangible, not, not simply an idealistic, but a very tangible transformation that's taking place in our species, then I think it will be easier for us to move through this crisis quickly, efficiently. This is This is very much of a birth process, and we don't want birth to take too long. Mm-hmm. And there's no guarantee that it will all come out right. You know, we're we're at the edge of the evolutionary cusp here, so you know there are no guarantees. You don't want it to take too long. You don't want to get stuck trying to arrest the process. Mm-hmm. You actually want to accelerate the process, move forward, and become what nature wants us to become, what nature is inviting us, drawing us to become, the very best version of ourselves, deepest, most profound version of ourselves. Okay, okay. Thank you so much, Christopher Bush. Thank you, Joanna. It's been my pleasure. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making your own tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.